Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask now that you guide us through your word and aid our understanding of it. Without your opening this to us, we cannot understand it. So we ask that you be our teacher. We ask that we be your student. And we thank you for your word, asking this in your name. Amen. My intention this morning is to explain as best I can this passage of Scripture. That is not only my intention, but my responsibility. And uh, what I'm not given the opportunity to do is explain what I wish it meant or what I would like for it to say but I have to explain it as it is and there's a reason why the passage that we study today is among what is often called the hard sayings of Christ actually this is only getting into what will be the hard sayings of Christ and that's in two ways hard to understand and uh, hard to digest these are things that might not be the way we thought they would have been. But then again, this is Scripture. And it has to say what it says. We can't read into it. We can't make it say more than it says. We can't make it say less than it says. We have to understand it as it is. Now, what we have just heard uh, from John 6 was not what the crowd wanted or what they expected. Uh, the opening line is that they are grumbling. Um, it opens that way regarding what Jesus had said previously. And just to move on into the passages we'll be studying the weeks to come, uh, by the end of the paragraph, Jesus is going to tell them today, what we study, that it is his flesh that is actually the bread that he is going to save the world with. That will leave them at the end or the beginning of the next paragraph, verse 52, disputing among themselves. So they're grumbling here. Next week they'll be disputing, or rather the week after. And then by verse 60, after elaborating on what he means in the previous paragraph, people will walk away from Jesus, some never to return. That's the definition of these hard sayings hard for people to understand and downright offensive for others in other way in, uh, words to uh, put it in maybe more modern uh, vernacular um, I'm going to unsubscribe to this channel um, don't like the way this sounds don't like what it says not what I signed up for and the people will walk away now today, only what we're going to do is focus on 41 through 51, what we just heard. And we're going to try to understand, first of all, why this hostile reaction after what this man that they wanted to be king had said to them and why they are upset. So we'll start with the why they're grumbling and that having to do with what Jesus said in the previous paragraph that we actually studied last week. The word grumbling, take care of that first. Would you know it that that's the same word 
that uh, was translated from Hebrew into Greek uh, in the Septuagint, but it's the same word that Paul will use to describe what the Hebrews did in the wilderness. You remember that from Sunday school, don't you? Forty years worth of wandering around in the wilderness and grumbling about what they ate and about what they missed and about all the things that were happening to them. Very same word here. The people were, were grumbling. It's also translated murmuring. You might have that in your translation. And that indicates discontent. All the words semantically are only different in a nuanced way. But that's the confused sound that runs through a crowd when they are angry and not in favor of what they are hearing. How many of you have ever been in an airport when the screens start to indicate canceled flights? They usually start at the top, canceled, 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 canceled. Were you watching the screen or did you hear the murmuring before you actually thought, oh no, that's the sound of canceled flights? Nobody wants to hear that. That means your day's ruined. Well, that is the sound of the crowd that they're making audibly. They don't like what Jesus is saying. Now, they fed them yesterday. They want to make him king the previous evening. They found him again this day. They ask why or when he came across. He tells them they're there for the wrong reason. And then he begins to elaborate into what he really wants to tell them. And as they understand what he's saying, they begin to grumble and murmur. John tells us why they're murmuring in verse 41. So he helps us move through this quickly. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, that's Jesus, I am the bread that came down from heaven. That's what they don't like. So we've got to understand what they... what they think of that and why that is offensive to them. Verse 42, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So that's another step in the thinking process. But it's not just what Jesus has said, but their impression of who he is and how dare he say that. That's part of the problem. So, what's made them mad, what's offended them, the Jews, as John calls them, has made them mad because they think they know better of the situation. Try to imagine in your mind somehow the same way. You've got your notions about someone and perhaps their motives, and they say something, and to you, you think, yeah, right. I know you, and I know that's not the truth. Maybe it's salesmanship, maybe it's bragging, uh, maybe it's some type of false humility that you think you know better of, but it's because you know this person and you think you know them in a certain way that it cancels out what they're saying. It's a hypocrisy here that, that doesn't quite compute. Well, similarly, that's what they think is going on. They're mad because they've recognized Jesus saying things that has put him on par with God. When he says, I came down from heaven, that's his way of saying he's God or like God. Nobody comes down from heaven. Everybody's born here on earth. 
So saying this in the ears of Hebrew people, Jewish people, that's not going to fly. They're thinking, after all these years, he's lived like any one of the rest of us. We know his mom, we know his dad. I went to trade school with Jesus. And he says he comes down from heaven. He's going to feed us like Moses. Uh, fulfill some of these prophecies. No, that's not the way this works. This is Jesus. And we all know who he is. And that's why it was offensive to them. So to them, his claim of heavenly origin was incredible. And we use words like incredible for uh, the incredible Hulk. Incredible means not credible. It's not that it's credible, it's incredible. It's opposite of credible. We don't credit his story. It's not true. Now the point is, they don't know who Jesus really is. That's the problem. They've misjudged Jesus. He is right. They are wrong. But in their minds, they're right. Have you ever been arguing with someone? And you know in your head that they're wrong. But you know that in their head they're right. Because they haven't added it all up yet. And maybe, let's switch this. That's you. And your wife is thinking, you know what? He thinks he's right. But he's actually wrong. And I know he's wrong because I know he hadn't added it all together. We do this all the time, don't we? We'll sit in front of our TVs and yell at them. The person on the TV talking is wrong. And we know they're wrong because we've got it all figured out. And and it's right for us, so it's wrong for them. Or we do this behind the wheel of our car. But we're all the time making judgments on insufficient evidence. And it may be right. It may be wrong, but the truth of it is, none of us know everything. And that's the case with these people. They didn't know everything about Jesus. He does. And that's why they're upset. And that's why they're walk off. And you'll find this to be true in your efforts to witness and evangelize. There are people that will have judged Jesus by the cover that they gave him. And think that you're wrong in what you're saying. And in many cases, there's not much we can do about that. But what Jesus is going to say in here is going to help us understand how people that are upset with what he's saying and know that what he's saying is wrong in their head, even though what he's saying is right, can be fixed. There's something God can do about that. And that's what, in this passage, is the controversial part of it. So let's keep moving. To them, his claim of heavenly origin was incredible. On the one hand, we probably would have come to the same conclusion under the same circumstances. If you had gone to trade school with Jesus, you'd likely think when he said he came down from heaven, you'd go, "Uh, no. But on the other hand, neither they nor we have the right to judge people this way, much more the Son of God. We do this all the time, but we shouldn't. They had done it. And they don't know everything. We do it. We don't know everything. So with that in mind, let's take it the next step. In a moment, I'll show you where verse 37 we studied last week fits with verse 43 and 4. But one thing I want to remind you of. You remember when we started studying this book? And this was months ago. We studied the prologue, the first chapter very meticulously 
And one thing that was said then was that John has given us all the heavy claims of Jesus up front. And if we believe these heavy claims, then all of the rest of the book will make sense to us. In fact, if you want to turn back to chapter 1, that's just a few pages. We're only in chapter 6 after all the time we've been spending here. Actually, verse 1, and then if that doesn't take care of it, verse 14 surely will. But what does John say about this Jesus he's going to write an entire book of? In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, means He was in heaven, and the Word was God. He Himself is God. If these people who'd been fed by the five loaves and two fish believe that, they'd have no problem. The problem is because that's precisely what they do not believe, right? And then look at verse 14. And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. That the God in heaven came down and became a human. That's what they don't believe. We see it. We've already read it. We believe it. We're watching the story. But for these people, they're just not that far along. What Jesus does next is to tell them to stop their grumbling and then repeats the thought of verse 37, but in a stronger form. So look back at verse 37 of chapter 6. This is what we studied last week. And just hang with me. We're all putting the pieces of the puzzle together. When we get enough pieces, we'll be able to see what's here. And then uh, we'll try to sew it all up. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So all the people who are going to believe in Jesus, and most of the people in this crowd do not, all the people who will are going to come to him. And the ones that come to him are never going to be cast out. That's what he said in the previous chapter. Well, now they're angry that he says he's come down from heaven and that they don't understand it. Well, look what he says in verse 43. Jesus answered them about their grumbling. Do not grumble among yourselves, as if to say, I get why you're grumbling, because I know what you don't believe. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Which is another way of saying, you will never believe me. Understand me, get me, come to me, receive me, embrace me. Believe in me unless something happens first. And that is that God draws you. Almost as if he knows exactly what's going on and exactly why they don't. But this is what we've got. He goes on to say, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is a permanent transaction. And then verse 45, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So there's a process of hearing and learning that's involved in coming to Jesus by work of the Father. And then verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. These are the words that are controversial, the ones that are misunderstood. They were on this day we're reading about. They are still today. And it's because these words refer to those that would respond to Jesus. They have to do with how you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
So the reason why it can be pulled in so many directions is because, to put it bluntly, this is messing with the way we get saved. Right? Either we're in on it or we're not. Or either we are but second rather than first. There's so many different ways that this can be looked at. These are what many scholars and theologians would call the doctrines of grace. There are other terms that could be used to refer to this. Reformed theology. Calvinism. We're not going to worry so much about that today. Calvin wouldn't come along for another 1,500 years. Jesus said this a long time before Calvin started writing about it. And then, not to speak of all the things that people did with what Calvin said that he didn't mean to say. Let me give you a little background on my struggle with concepts such as these. To put it specifically, so everybody knows what we're talking about. The difference between predestination and free will. To go off to Bible school doesn't mean that you've got all that figured out before you go. And it doesn't mean that when you get back, you'll have it all figured out. Uh, Word of Life, um, we're just barely out of high school. And yes, we talked about certain things like this, but there wasn't much arguing about it because I think we all knew we didn't have much to argue about. We're learning. But by the time I got to Liberty University, uh, there were those that I'd share class with that were a little more... uh, Dad used to call it um, uh, college and seminary graduates are kind of like wasps. They're, they're, they're the biggest right after they're born than they'll ever be. You know, they're puffed up with all the stuff they've learned. And, and uh, you get the idea that they think they know everything. And at, at Liberty University, the school of religion, it, you find out real quick that if there's something controversial, usually it seems that people will gravitate into one of the two camps. And you'll study what you know in one camp as to be able to argue against the other. But the problem with that for me was the more I read and the more I understood and the more I listened, I began to work on this idea that both of these things are in Scripture. Both of these are described in different places. So why are we trying to form different camps as to which one of the two things in Scripture we like better and then to attack the other as if it's not true? So at a spot when I thought I was about as confused as I could ever be, I went to talk with one of my father's professors who I listened to on Wednesday nights. Uh, in the Pate Chapel, Dr. Harold Wilmington. Some of you are familiar with him. He's now with the Lord. And I said, what do I do? I'm being pulled on in two different directions. I don't feel qualified to argue these things. In fact, the more we talk, the more my head hurts. And sometimes my heart hurts after this. And I'm wondering the profitability in spending so much time in something that I'm, I'm wondering if the Lord meant for us to embrace as mysterious. Along with the other things in the Bible that he's just not telling. He knows, but he's not telling. And Dr. Wilmington said kindly, he said, son, they're both in the scriptures. And you teach them both because you teach the Bible. Be faithful with the text. And God will speak through it. And the problems that come up won't be yours, they'll be his. And then he clued me in on something. 
He said, we've been offended by what God is saying for a long time and will continue to be. The fact that the people in Christ's day got upset with what he said is only prelude to us getting upset with what God will say. Because we've got certain ways we want to think about things. And sometimes the Bible just ruins all that. He said, you'll find that the Bible will ruin some of your best sermons. Because you'll want to say what you want to say. But you can't do that. You've got to say what the Bible says. So what I am going to invite you to do this morning is what I was invited to do. Instead of trying to find a guru who can explain things to you because you think he's smarter than you are. And that may very well be true. We all learn from people smarter than us. But as far as where you place your trust, you trust Jesus, don't you? If you have a red letter edition, these words are red. Jesus is speaking here. What we're learning this morning is what Jesus says about how we are saved, how we come to Him, how we approach Him. So we're going to have to think carefully here. It's worth our thinking carefully. No topic could be more important. This is the gospel. And what we've got here with what Jesus says, and here's where I'll get technical, and uh, keep your thinking cap on, it's necessary. Part of this is academic. Jesus has put this truth to these people by way of a universal negative proposition. I actually talked in a middle school class this morning. They've heard this already. And uh, none of them passed out when I said universal negative proposition. But that's what this means. And what is meant by that? Universal. It applies to everyone. When the scripture says no one, that's everybody. Some translations, no man. Well, it's no person, man or woman. None. Everybody's included. There are no exceptions. Universal negative proposition. So whatever this applies to, it's in the negative. They can't do it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, what it is that will universally never happen with man, with no exceptions, is that no one will come to him of their own volition. That's what Jesus is saying. Theologically, this is because of a condition that affects everyone since Adam and Eve, and we call this depravity, our fallenness, our being dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, some of this will shape up as we move along, but try to keep all these in your, in your, your head. We would really like to write these verses backwards, wouldn't we? Let's try it on. Let's reverse them and see if that makes us more comfortable. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. The Father cannot draw any of you unless you come to me. That's not what it says, though. None of you can come to me unless the Father draws you. What about verse 37? Uh, All that come to me, my Father will give to me. All right, I'll come to Jesus and then I can rest confident that God will give me to Jesus if I come to Jesus. It's not what it says. God will give you to Jesus and then you'll come to him. That's the order. You see why we don't necessarily like this? Because we're not in control of this as it sounds 
right here. And that's why these people don't like it either. The Father cannot draw anyone who does not come. That's not right. All that come to the Father will be given to Jesus. That's not right. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus is basically saying, you can't do this by yourself. And that's what we don't like, and that's what they didn't like. That's what we talked about in middle school. How many of you like being told you can't do something? Boy, I are being really good in church today. How many of you kids like it when your parents say, you can't do that? Sorry, you're not going. You're staying home. No, I'm not buying you that car. No, we're not stopping where you all want to eat. I'm not going through four different drive throughs so you're all happy. We're going to go where I want to eat. We don't like being told that we can't do things. And this isn't old, and we'll never grow out of this until we see Jesus face to face. Wind back all the way to the Garden of Eden. That tree over there, that one. You can't have that one. You have all the rest of them. That's most of them. It's all of them, but that one. That one you can't have. Okay. But then comes along the devil. You know what? He, he's keeping something from you. There's something you don't know. If you eat of that tree, you'll know stuff that he knows. So what are they working off of? The truth or an error? They think they know better than God does. So they begin to grumble. And then they actually take the fruit and they eat it. So you can't have that, but they say, uh, yeah, I can. And they do. And then what happens? Then they run out of the garden. They were promised, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So now they have no access to the Father anymore. They're out of the garden. Well, I want to get back to God. I, I want to talk to God. Sorry. You can't do that. Oh, I did before. Yeah, you did before. But that was different. Now, you can't. Because you're dead. Right? That's what he said. I gave you life. I breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. You have physical life, but there's spiritual life too. And I'm going to take that from you as a part of your sin. It's punishment. It's death. And there's nothing you can do to change that. We even talked in middle school this morning about dead things. I asked them if they'd ever, you know, poked dead things with a stick. Played around with a dead squirrel or lizard or something the dog brought in. Dead things don't do anything, right? Dead things don't come to Jesus. Unless, of course, God does something miraculously. Paid for by a cross and the work of His Son. Which has to do with giving you back what you lost in the garden, which is spiritual life. That's what's going on here. Jesus is simply saying that these people will only come, believe, embrace Him, if the Father moves them to that step. The word in verse 44 is unless. 
And that word signals a necessary condition. Um, We're familiar with necessary conditions. You can't build your house unless you get a permit for it. Permit's a necessary condition. You can't come to Jesus unless the Father moves you. It's a necessary condition. We feel like we want to be independent. We think that we can come, or that we can come to Jesus entirely of our own thinking. But in this passage, Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No man, no man at all, can come unless the Father draws him. So it looks as if we've got nothing to do with this, doesn't it? See, I told you you wouldn't like it. it. Might even make you feel like a robot. But don't. We haven't had verse 45 yet, which happens to be the very next verse. In verse 45, let's read it. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So in verse 45, Jesus quotes a portion of Isaiah's prophecy. So he's, he's qualifying what he's saying by using Scripture from the Old Testament to validate it. And what he says is that all those who have heard and learned from God will come to Jesus. So he's telling us basically that the method by which Jesus draws us to his son Jesus includes hearing and learning. That's the process of being drawn. Now you tell me, who does teaching and who does learning? Teachers do the teaching. Students do the learning, right? Any of you ever sat down in class and said, Hey, teach. I'm going to let you do the learning today. You do them both. I'm just going to sit and, I don't know, play Angry Birds or something. It doesn't work that way. Teaching involves our thinking. Teaching involves our study. Teaching involves our participation. Learning. And if you've raised children, know what learning is all about. So how does God get this done? It seems as though it's clear that a relationship with Christ depends on God's action in our lives from verse 44. But it also seems very clear that it depends on our response to it. There's your free will. Your choice. Up against the strong predestinarian thought in the previous verses, this seems to be an implicit invitation to believe. Now, Dr. Wilmington told me that there was both in the Scripture, but doesn't it work out well when both of them are neighbors? Verse 44 and verse 45, both together at the same time. Then in verse 47... Christ gives us this third use of the double truly, in other words, raising the level of importance as to what he's about to say, and says that whoever, the same word that we see in John 3.16, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It has to do with the believing process. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So death 
not death. Death from the garden. You eat this and then you don't die like it was promised in the garden. This has to do with the work of God on your behalf that you must respond to. So earlier the crowd had brought up the subject of manna that God had fed the Hebrews with in the wilderness and suggested that Jesus do the same. Jesus is making the point that the manna had its limits in the earlier passage. It's just physical food for your physical body and no more. There's nothing spiritual about the manna. I am the bread of life. You must eat me, spiritually speaking. I must be your salvation. You can't do this on your own. It requires my righteousness, not yours. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That sets us up for the weeks to come. When he's actually going to say to these people, with no wiggle room or no way out, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you want to talk about a hard saying. This man's crazy, is what most thought when they left that day. He's talking spiritually. Do you remember last week we went through this? We're not going to understand what's in this passage if we can't separate the physical material from the spiritual eternal. Jesus is not talking about food you eat made out of molecules. He's talking about spiritual things. You must follow him spiritually. And the same thing with eating his body and drinking his blood. It's spiritual. It's not physical. It's not cannibalism. It's not even transubstantiation, if you know what that means. It's a total lifestyle. Total dependence. Total administrative rights. You come to me and I am your ticket to heaven. That's what he's referring to here. And it's almost impossible to understand this use of the word flesh without going back to John 1.14. And the word became flesh. He became a body. So that yours wouldn't need to be killed. His would be killed in your place. To satisfy your spiritual punishment. Folks. This passage has its mystery. And uh, for whatever it's worth from the perspective of your pastor. Who still has much to learn about the scripture. And is growing more comfortable. With not knowing everything there is to know. So many things we're going to have to trust the Lord with. Lots of our why questions aren't answered. But what we must do is trust the scriptures and trust our Savior. And when our head starts to ache, we pray that simple prayer the other fellow did. I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a lot going on here, a lot of moving parts, things we're not privy to. We are more like these grumbling people who have heard something we don't necessarily like. It passed maybe one nostril on the sniff test, but the other one, no, well, wait a minute. It's not what I thought. But we don't know everything yet. There's more going on. Now, some of you like reading the end of a book. 
to get what's going on first. Uh, some of you don't like to do that. Well, this isn't the end, but it's closer to it. Turn with me to John 17. And what we've got here is about as holy of ground as you can come across in Scripture. This is about as close to reading the diary of the Son of God as you can get. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark before crucifixion. And this is Jesus talking to His Father. We're reading the private prayer of Jesus Christ to His Father in Heaven. Asking for all sorts of things. But you would be surprised just to know what's in here. And maybe this will help you a little bit with what we just read. Look at verse 6. I have manifested or made known your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Who would they be? Well, he said, those that come to me, God has given to me. And I'll never turn them loose. So Jesus is saying, I taught them your name, the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Wonder why? Well, because God made you. That's why you're His. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. So these people are learning. They're being brought along. It's been a rough ride. And they still don't have everything yet. One of these that Peter has yet to deny him three times. But he's among this group because of the foot washing thing where he said, no, 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 you don't need a whole bath, Peter. Just your feet washed and you'll need them washed again tomorrow. Because you don't even know what's coming tonight. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. They're believing. Right? I am praying for them. Are you encouraged when somebody says they're praying for you? Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? The night before we hung him on a tree and killed him? This is heavy. I'm not praying for the world. This is different. But for those that you've given me. Because that seems like two different groups. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that be Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We'll save the rest of this for when we get to chapter 17. But do you see what's going on here? The father and the son know who we are and who belongs to who. And they're determined not to let any of us slip through. The thing we're so scared about with this predestination idea is that someone will go knocking on the door. I want in. And Jesus says, sorry, I haven't chosen you. 
that's an impossibility. Because all who ever come will never be tossed out. That's one thing we can be absolutely sure will never happen. But what bothers us is I think we want to be able to say some magic words at one point in time and we're set for the rest of life based on some magic words that we said. When nothing in scripture gives us any indication that this is anything other than a long drawn out learning process with successes and failures only possible through the help of a God who's merciful enough to say even though you sinned against me I will forgive your sins. That whole crowd here listening, part of them grumbling, they don't like this, and so many that will walk away. With such a big gathering, I'm almost convinced, I can't see any reason why, James, the brother of Jesus, would not have been there when all that was going on. And Jesus clearly said, you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. And then we'll learn in chapter 7 that James and his brothers are telling Jesus to go do something uh, at the Passover feast and do some miracles and then everybody will receive him. It didn't go too well here, but it'll go better if you go do your tricks. They still don't get it. But then what was it we studied on Wednesday night not long ago? The book of James, written by the brother of Jesus who believed in him after the resurrection. So there's a lot going on we don't know about. And I'm hanging on that word yet from last week. You've seen me, but yet you don't believe. Mamas, keep praying for your boys, your daughters, daddies too, grandmothers. Hang on to that word yet. I don't know that Mary prayed for James. I think Jesus is praying for James. James was given to Jesus by the Father. And if you're his, so are you. God has to kickstart this. Else it wouldn't happen because we're dead. But once it's begun, it's required of you to respond. To learn. Every day. More like Jesus today than yesterday. More tomorrow than today. And folks, there's things that we could talk about from this book that would be a lot more exciting that would get me talked about wherever you're going to eat a lot more. (laughs) But I'm not given that luxury, and you wouldn't want me to. We're teaching through John, and this is what Jesus says. And if you feel a little less in control than perhaps you did when you came in, you never were in control. And God's always been in control. And that's the way we want it. We need to trust and we need to obey. For there's no other way than to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. These are hard. And unless he opens them to us, we'll never understand. But may we receive the witness of God's word. May he be the truth. May we be the liars. And if we have any problems with Scripture, may the problems be with us and not with Scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, encourage us through this. May we not be confused. And where we're confused, may we trust you.
Lord, we're dead without you. We're not saved without you. But Lord, we must believe. Help our unbelief. We thank you for your word in our time together. We ask this in your name. Amen.